0: Good evening, Boston. Welcome to BNN News. I'm Faith Maffedon. Thanks for tuning in. This week, Mayor Wu held the State of the City Address, and her ambitions to continue improving Boston resonated with residents. Mayor Michelle Wu gave her first State of the City Address at the new MGM Music Hall on Wednesday night, reflecting on the strides her administration has made and highlighting what's to come for Boston.
1: In so many other cities, none of this would have been possible but Boston has never let anyone else define our possibilities. It's thanks to the people of Boston that I could stand here tonight and say, the state of our city is strong.
0: Wu announced several new programs, including a new task force to help end youth violence in the city.
1: Over the last decade, Boston saw the largest building boom in generations, cranes in the sky and jobs on the ground. But that growth wasn't harnessed for the benefit of all our communities. In this moment of need, we have an opportunity and an obligation to change how we plan for Boston's future. We are charting a new course for growth with people as our compass. We've analyzed every square foot of city-owned property and identified several parcels that could generate thousands of affordable housing units. We also have 150 vacant lots in our neighborhoods ready for housing, local builders, Work with us to design high quality, affordable homes that enhance the surrounding neighborhood, and we'll give you the land for free.
0: The inspiring speech brought standing ovations and an overwhelming sense of hope for the
1: future. Boston is a city that will never stop reaching, up toward the progress we know to be possible, and out to the community whose work makes it lasting. Thank you, and God bless the city and people of Boston.
0: In East Boston, residents are up in arms over a new construction project that plans to create a substation in the neighborhood. Extinction Rebellion Boston and fellow activists are concerned with flooding and its proximity to residents. It was a quiet Wednesday morning on the neighborhood streets of East Boston. And local residents from the No East East substation campaign, supported by members of Extinction Rebellion Boston, are fighting to keep it that way. Utility company Eversource is ready to break ground building a new electrical substation starting January 11th. Construction is estimated to last two years. Climate activists have been vocal about the costly project and what they believe is a terrible location due to flooding.
1: Many reasons why this is wrong, but the first and foremost is that we're paying $103 million for an investment on something that within its lifespan is going to be getting flooded. I
0: mean, building right on the waterfront with electrical infrastructure, critical electrical infrastructure, makes no sense whatsoever, especially when we have a place uh, that's going to be using most of this electricity, Logan Airport, where we've already invested the money in floodproofing and raising the ground level over there. So it makes a lot more sense to have it there. The substation's purpose is to lower the voltage of electricity from a transmission line beneath Chelsea Creek, so its power can be used in surrounding homes and businesses. However, its location, directly across from a busy playground and on the banks of the frequently flooding creek, has opposers concerned about the safety of Eastie residents. We
2: don't need electrical dangerous infrastructure in a flood zone. We need more green space, we need more tree coverage. This area has the least tree coverage in the greater Boston area. And this is a really dangerous thing if you speak to families and people who who are living in this uh, direct environment, whose children are playing on the playground here. These things can explode and we cannot build dangerous infrastructure next to. Uh, playgrounds. That should be very clear. That should be very clear to Eversource and also to the state of Massachusetts.
0: Despite Eversource's green light, the East Boston community remains hopeful that new state leadership will be receptive to their demands in stopping the substation's completion. According to a recent Twitter poll, Boston has a major problem when it comes to anger on the roads. For every 100,000 people, there are 137 tweets that come through for the city of Boston with the hashtag Road Rage. BNN News took to the streets of Copley Square to find out why Boston drivers are so angry. If you live in Boston, you've seen it or done it. Lost your cool behind the wheel.
3: The horns in Massachusetts are insane. You know, we, everybody loves to uh, lay on their horn. You
0: like got lights. People don't really have patience when you're when the light just turns green. They're beeping almost immediately. Um, and then obviously on the highway, you see people when they are even if you're going a little bit slower in maybe the fast lane, they get really upset and you see them swerve around. I mean, I saw it yesterday when I was in a car with my girlfriend.
3: Like I'm trying to cross the road, and you know someone is coming uh, from the other direction, speeding, and you know the 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 robot is giving me the green light to go as a pedestrian, but this guy is like already in a like in a frenzy of like moving across.
0: In a survey of a thousand drivers and a Twitter search, Boston ranked 11th as the worst city for road rage, trailing behind Cincinnati, Ohio, Tampa, Florida, and Buffalo, New York. But why is Boston so high on the list? I think
3: that there's, you know, a combination of factors. You know, there's a lot of construction, um, a lot of things. Like, even in my neighborhood in Cambridge, one-way streets change to the other-way streets and things like that. So I think that people don't like change. They find it confusing.
0: I think it's an impatience thing. Um, We're always on the move to go somewhere. Um, We're always trying to get to either an event or a work or a job. So I think that's where it comes from because I think it's gotten worse Um, and I think it's worse because post-pandemic people are less have less social etiquette now. Being on the receiving end of road rage can be a terrifying experience. Just I was driving with my
3: girlfriend on Mass Ave uh, in South End uh, and literally just like the the guys right behind me just like they started honking at us and then I was like I didn't know what was happening and they literally like on the red light they left their car and pretty much walked right next to us and tried to break in, yeah. And I had to lock the doors and it's just like they weren't leaving. They ended up breaking our glass and I had to
0: drive away. Drivers with road rage often act without thinking of the consequences.
4: Some people might want to vent their frustrations with other drivers on the road, but unfortunately, sometimes it doesn't take much for an incident to escalate. And drivers might face a situation like being brake checked or being blocked from changing lanes which can lead to an accident or even an altercation with another driver in some cases. We don't know who officially has the most road rage. We know that people believe that men, young drivers, and people in sports cars are the most prone to road rage. And as to the why, this is just speculation. But with younger drivers, it might be people chalking it up to less experience on the road. And with sports car drivers, it just might be the stereotype of the hot shot with the sports car.
0: As far as avoiding confrontations, Hannah shared a few tips.
4: AAA recommends always following a safe following distance, only honking when absolutely necessary, and just not engaging with other drivers when you can help it by not yelling or using hand gestures. It's important to stay as level-headed as possible just to allow drivers to make the calm, safe decision on the roads.
0: And residents offered sage advice as well. If people can just calm down, take their turn, be a little bit more patient, let people pass, let people
3: in, then you know we would increase the safety of our drivers all around us.
0: Or if that doesn't work? Take a chill pill. The Boston Globe has reported the most impactful stories of Boston and our nation since 1872. And the sesquicentennial, new word alert, the 150 years is being celebrated all year long. Down in the Seaport Commons, staffers and readers alike celebrated a special anniversary of one of the most read newspapers in the country. The Boston Globe has served as one of the city's most reliable news sources for 150 years.
1: This is something that's been around for a long time before us and a long time afterwards and those of us that are um, in the room and have the honor of working for the Globe are students for right now and we take that role very seriously and we're only successful because of the cooperation and support that we have from the community around us, so thank
0: you, onward. Since its first edition on March 4th, 1872, the Globe has covered countless historical moments in the city, from the Coconut Grove fire, desegregation of Boston public schools, to the Boston Marathon bombing, with an eye on always telling the truth.
3: And over 150 years, as you might imagine, our commitment to truth and authenticity and journalism has been unwavered, But we've also, you know, in our past, we've, we've not been perfect. So this celebration is about um, reminding everyone of all the wonderful things that we are, all the authenticity, all of the truth.
0: Boston Poet Laureate Portia Olayuola shared her commissioned poem, Portrait of the Boston Globe as Atlas, to capture the history and mission of the news giant.
2: Like land and money, truth is also a God. The world is celestial, depending on whose shoulders we sit. Truth. The circulation of newspapers increase during times of war. Periled people need knowing to unfold like a map. Need clarity, clear as a
0: marked path toward truth. Over the course of 15 decades, the Boston Globe has been committed to serving the community. Their devotion to solid journalism and their ability to evolve are why they've been around for more than a century. Here's to the next 150 years. The Boston Parks and Recreation Department and Public Health Commission have announced a new way to keep Bostonians moving during the colder months, the Winter Fitness Series. From now until the end of April, anyone who would like to enjoy public classes in the park is welcome to join in on the fun. From yoga to dance to strength training, every day of the week holds a new class. Both in-person and virtual classes will be held all winter long in an effort to increase opportunities for physical activity and reduce barriers to active living. For more information including dates and times boston.gov forward slash winter dash fitness and onward we go the Department of Veteran Affairs Veterans Affairs recently created policy to support veterans in emergency mental health crises. Qualifying patients can go to any hospital in the United States and receive free mental health support from licensed medical professionals. The policy change is a step towards better supporting veterans who are one of the most vulnerable groups in terms of suicidal ideation. To access more information on qualifications and other details, you can visit news.va.gov confidential support is available 24 7 from the veterans crisis line or you can call or chat online anywhere anytime we had the joy of speaking more with Portia Olayuola a renowned writer and poet who uses Afrofuturism and surrealism to examine historical and current issues within black women and queer communities. She's an individual World Poetry Slam champion and the founder of the Roxbury Poetry Festival. As Boston's reigning poet laureate, she continues to defy expectations. We discussed her recent collaboration with the Boston Globe and the role of truth and journalism in our world. Here's our conversation. Portia, it's such an honor getting the chat with you. I'd love for you to talk to us about the process of creating Portrait of the Boston Globe as Atlas.
2: Yeah, sure thing. Um, The request came to me via the Globe, um, I want to say in the winter, early January of this year. Um, And I was really excited about it. And maybe in part because I had been teaching a class and had just gotten past the unit on um, the journalist Ida B. Wells Barnett um, but either way, I was excited, excited about the possibility of journalism and what it means and what it means for folks to have access to that. Um, and so immediately when I, when I agreed to do it, um, asked for an ex- as much history as I could possibly add, I, I asked for access to the archives so that I could begin to kind of see some of the major points that I wanted to touch on in the context of the last 150 years. Um, So they gave me as much material as I could possibly get my hands on and I spent a lot of time on the um, Pulitzer Prize website um, and seeing all of the pieces that they got nominated for the Globe over the years uh, and really drawing most of my attention to some of those uh, pieces. Um, And from there, you know, life kind of writes itself, you know. The Globe is writing about um, real life experiences and so those things, you know, need not too many poetics for them to kind of exist on the page, Um, so it was a matter of just kind of collecting the things that they had collected and piecing it
0: together. In addition to your poem, there was an installation piece in the seaport. Can you tell us what your impressions were getting to see it in person? Overall, the installation is definitely overwhelming, (laughs) if I can say that. I
2: almost can't take it all in. You know, there are so many different pieces um, that show up, whether it be the palm itself, uh, whether it be uh, these co- you know, commercials they have running, um, or this installation uh, more specifically. I, um, it's, gl- it's glorious, it's gorgeous. You know, Thinking about why I wrote each line and what particular story, whose story that, that it's attached to, and then to see some of those photos out there next to the words. Uh, It's really kind of a dream, a bit of a dream um, and one that is a bit startling that that is the reality that we live in and have lived in and uh, find necessary to kind of voice and talk about.
0: What is the position of truth right now in this moment that we find ourselves in? And what's the importance of news sources like the Boston Globe of existing?
2: We live in a world where there is something called alternative facts. You know, where there it almost seems like we live in a country that offers two different perspectives and two different truths, if you will. And I think it's extremely important for folks to know what is happening in the world. When I think about some of the things of like being in my body and thinking about what's happening down the street in Boston, but also what's happening in Mississippi you know what's happening overseas as far as floods and droughts you know it's absolutely necessary to be aware of these things to have these things you know I can't go out and find this information on my own accord right and so it's important for outlets like this for organizations like this to be in a ferocious and fierce
0: um march towards collecting the truth right an unbiased truth and how do you define truth for yourself how do you ground it in your work I think the goal is always to get to as close to the truth as possible. And especially for
2: a poet, right? Our goal is to name things that are not nameable. Like, how do you talk about an emotion, right? My job is to, like, figure that out. And I think in doing so, in in my, my advantageous march towards that goal, it requires me constantly, absolutely figuring out what the truth is, right? Getting as close to the bone as you can Um, in regards to feelings and also in in regards to naming what it is that we experience as a collective but maybe not necessarily talk about as a collective, right? And so for me, that's how it comes up in my work, right? It's this question of of getting as close to that truth or as close to that emotion or that naming as I possibly can.
0: Although you hold the esteemed role as Boston's Poet Laureate, you're actually from Chicago. How did you go about getting to know the city of Boston, and what do you hope to do next as Boston's Poet Laureate? I mean, I've gotten
2: to know the city intimately. It's been an incredible relationship. Um, when I first moved here, I told folks that I would only stay here if I fell in love, and I did, right, um, and in love with the city. It's. A little bit different than chicago and that chicago is huge right um i feel like boston you know if i go to the grocery store i'm probably gonna see someone i know it's it's uh easy more manageable city which makes for a more intimate city It, it feels really good to be here and to grow here and to to kind of give back and 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 do the things the job of living here um i'm kind of infatuated with the city. Um, for for a number of reasons, for the intimacy, but also the access to education. Um, the people are just really incredible and generous. Um, and then what was the latter part of the question? Oh, what do I want to do next with my role as the laureate? Um, so many things, entirely too many things. I have a list. I think the thing that I've been most moving towards, uh, two of them, the first is something called a non mfa mfa which is really providing access to um, the mfa style workshop to folks who may not have the access but you know making rigor accessible right accessible and free so i've been like working with some schools some mfa programs in the area to figure out how that, what that's gonna look like and how we make that a possibility. And then I've also been doing some work with the Fine Arts Work Center to make sure um, Boston poets, and specifically Boston poets of color, um, can access the resources um, of some of the nationally acclaimed writers that teach each summer in P-Town. Um, right now we're working to secure quite a few scholarships for Boston writers of color um, to take those classes. So those are two things that I'm working on but I guarantee there's there's an entire list.
0: And finally, thinking about longevity, the Boston Globe has celebrated 150 years. What will it take to celebrate 150 more?
2: I think it really takes people, right, community. Um, I think it takes, you know, being willing. The last line of the poem is onward, but being willing to take on all of that means, right? Like making sure the people are always and constantly with you, and that's who you're serving. And that and not just for you know the globe, but for I think any organization. It always you always have to be listening to what's happening with young people, right? Because they are claiming what what the future will look like and which ways we will move. So I think always being adjustable and adaptable and forward
0: thinking. Julie Dyer Wood is the Climate Compact Director of the Charles River Watershed Association. She provides support for the research and data in order to maintain the health and beauty of the Charles. CRWA is one of the oldest watershed organizations in the country. She focuses on advocacy work, organizational strategies, and administrative reviews. We had her come into our studio to discuss CRWA's upcoming virtual event and their recent flood mapping project. Here's the interview. Charles River Watershed
3: Association is an environmental advocacy organization working to protect and restore the Charles River that we all love. Our work includes climate change adaptation, environmental restoration, environmental advocacy, and we also do our own science. You can't you can't improve what you don't understand. So we're out in the field measuring what are the problems with the Charles and what are the best solutions to take on addressing them.
0: Wonderful. And with funding support from Massachusetts Municipal Vulnerability Preparedness Program, uh, CRWA, and 20 cities and towns, you developed the Charles River Flood Model. Uh, Can you tell us more about what went into the creation of the flood model and what new information you've been able to glean from it?
3: Absolutely, Faith. Our local cities and towns, they're making decisions right now that are going to have impacts well into the future. And anytime we're talking about the future, of course, there's unknowns. None of us have a crystal ball. But climate change is making that even harder. We don't know what's coming. We don't necessarily know what's coming with our temperatures, with flooding, with environmental health. So what we've done at Charles River Watershed Association and with our partners, the cities and towns in the Charles River Climate Compact, is we've developed a computer model of the watershed that shows us where and when flooding is going to occur under potential future climate storm scenarios. Mm -hmm. That way cities and towns have the best available information to help inform those decisions they're making. Let's say you're a city or town leader. You need to build a new elementary school. Of course you don't want to build it where it's going to flood. So they can use the data from the Charles River Flood Model to try and help inform those kinds of decisions.
0: Oh, it's a really great tool to have. So in addition to this uh, wonderful flood model, uh, as you said, climate change, it's rapidly changing the city. What are some nature-based mitigation solutions that our residents can benefit from now?
3: Well, we at Charles River Watershed Association, we are always looking to those nature-based solutions. And those are solutions that use natural processes to help us adapt or help us clean the river. And often those are more flexible. So when I say that we don't know what's coming from climate change, by using nature-based approaches, it gives us a little bit of flexibility. It builds some flexibility into our system so that we can adapt whether we face the worst or whether things aren't quite as bad. They also help improve our environment. They can provide open spaces, improve our mental health, provide recreational opportunities. Hmm. Um, And these include things like constructed wetlands, um, improved wetlands, even just planting trees or smaller rain gardens. These all can help by slowing down water, storing water, filtering out pollutants, and providing shade and cooling because we know the summers are gonna get hotter.
0: Oh, yes, they, that they do. Uh, so in addition, uh, CRWA, you've worked closely with uh, Communities Responding to Extreme Weather for some time. Can you tell me a little bit about the most recent collaboration uh, your organizations have in the upcoming event, Solutions for Future Flooding, on February 1st?
3: Yes, we're so lucky to have Communities Responding to Extreme Weather, or crew as partners on this project. Um, They've been involved from the beginning, and this initiative kicked off in 2020, so we're a few years in now. And CREW, they really have, they have a real grassroots um, presence in the communities. So they really get out and talk to folks. Mm. Some of our work can be a little complicated and technical, but we're hoping that it will have on the ground impacts, that it will help, as I say, build resilience into our communities. So our partners at Crew, they really get out and talk to folks, hear from folks, what are their concerns, what flooding issues are they dealing with? Hmm. Crew also has a lot of information on how individuals can prepare for flooding. So So much in life can seem, you know, out of control. And especially with um, climate change, it just feels like we have no control over it. And Crew, they have great information on what you can do as a resident to prepare yourself. Where can you have control? And so we're excited on Wednesday, February 1st, we're partnering on a virtual event, a webinar, uh, where we're going to talk all about this project. Crew is going to present. Uh, we're going to have a member of the Mashpee Wampanoag Tribe bring in some traditional knowledge and storytelling. Right. Nice. Um, it should be a great event. So if anyone wants to join, they can just go to our website, crwa.org, and register for that event, which will take place on Zoom at 7 p.m.
0: All right, fabulous. We'll definitely share that. And for our viewers who want to learn more about the organization and support the work of Charles River Watershed Association, how can they do so?
3: Well, we have tons of information on our website, crwa.org. We'd love to see viewers at our virtual event next week. Um, And then we also have a monthly newsletter where we try and keep folks up to date with everything that's going on with the Charles and our work and how they can get involved. Um, So I would encourage folks to sign up for that as well.
0: All right, great information for this changing world that we find ourselves in. Julie Dyerwood, Climate Compact Director of the Charles River Watershed Association. Thank you so much for coming in today. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thanks for tuning in Boston. As a reminder, you can stream or watch the news on demand at bnnmedia.org. Each episode will be rebroadcast at 9:30 p.m. and 11 p.m. on Xfinity Channel 9, Astound Channel 15, and Fios Channel 2161. And make sure to check out our BNN HD Xfinity Channel 1072. To close out our broadcast this evening, we have Shalika Joseph, a junior from John D. O'Brien School of Mathematics and Science, perform at the State of the City address for BNN News, I'm Faith Mafidon. I'll see you.